Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. All right, well, I'm going to preach a little different message tonight. Um, with the revival coming up, this might be more suited to that. But we're going to look at 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16, and the title of my message is WWJD. 1 John 3.16, WWJD. 1 John 3.16. Well, I think, I, I can't remember exactly when it happened, but I feel like I was much younger. Uh, maybe a, a little bit above teenager years, and they came up with this WWJD, what would Jesus do? And it was all the rage. They had these bracelets, WWJD, and they had uh, shirts that said WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I used to make fun of that. I'd be like, well, what would Jesus do? He'd die on a cross, so why don't you just die on a cross then? What would Jesus do? Well, when he was 13, he confounded the religious leaders of the day. So, Ruthie, you're 13. Start confounding Brian, pa Pastor Brian, Pastor Andrews, and myself. You're 13. So, what would Jesus do? Jesus would predict the future, and he would tell people ever, everything they ever knew, like the woman at the well. So, get started doing that if you want to be like Jesus. But I thought a little bit more about that, and I said, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And thought a little bit more about his life. And looking at this passage, I think maybe we can take those things actually as examples for ourselves. And we're going to try to apply some of those things tonight. We're going to start with um, 1 John 3.16. But, you know, before we do that, I was thinking about some of the people who preach here. Pastor Brian. And I know I'm not going to have that same tremendous delivery and outline that Pastor Brian will have. Just not going to happen. And Brother Andrews, I'm not going to have those life lessons and that experience that he has. I'm just not going to deliver that tonight. And Brother Matthew, I'm definitely not going to have that awesome hair and that good beard he has. It's just not going to happen when I preach. But I am going to have something that all those men had when they preached. I'm going to have the thing that every man needs to have when he preaches I'm going to have my copy of the inspired, inerrant, infallible, preserved words of the living God. Amen. David said it this way, The words of the Lord are pure words as silver, tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And I know it's the right book because... Paul said it like this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That, why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And I know this is the power, this book is powerful because Paul said this, that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints of the marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. David said, uh, David said, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Jesus said, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He also said that, uh, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. 
He also said, One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. And I know that we're saved by this book. Peter said, Born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And James said this, Lay apart all, super, all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. And I know this book is designed for me and my growth. The Bible says, how can a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed thereunto according to thy word. He said, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And he said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I know we got the right book and I know we got the right message because it comes from the right book. So we're going to read here. And like Bill likes to say, though, before we get started here, we're going to sharpen our sword a little bit, and we'll say a quick prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and for the message that's going to come tonight from it. We ask that you help us apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. 1 John, 1 John 3.16 says this, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He laid down his life. He died on the cross. No, I'm not saying we should die on the cross. And I don't think that's what the passage is saying. But we should lay down our lives for the brethren. I'm going to say five things or four things about Jesus and probably only preach on three of them. And the first thing I want to say about Jesus in his life, that Jesus was a man of power. Jesus was a man of power. Matthew 21, 12 tells us the story about how he went into the temple and he saw the money changers and they were cheating the people. They were cheating those that would trade in uh, their bonders for their sacrifice. And he was cheating them. And the Bible says that he overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer and you have made it a den of thieves. Now, the Bible says, be angry and sin not. And we know Jesus did not sin. So he, so he followed that passage. The Bible says, divers weights are an abomination to the Lord. Let me put that in plainer words. God hates it when we cheat people. And so Jesus was justified by going into the temple and throwing over the tables and kicking the people out. And the Bible says that the only people that were allowed in the temple were the lame the blind and the sinners, only those willing to admit and humble themselves under the word of God that they were sinners. But you know, it's not the fact that Jesus was strong physically or that he was strong mentally, but that he was strong spiritually. Remember John 3, 34. For God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. So Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible says, in him dwelled the fullness of the Godhead bodily, so we should have known that. But physically, as a man and God at the same time, he had the Spirit of God without measure. So he was powerful because he was filled with the Spirit. We're commanded in Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with wine where is excess, but be ye filled with the Spirit. So we should have that power. In Ephesians 6.10, my daughter she quoted, she read it right before they sang the song. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. 
We're to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Jesus was powerful. He was no sissy. He was no wimp. He was powerful. He was strong. But we know that it wasn't about being physically strong. Because we know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and things in high places. And besides that, we know that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical. We know that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And so our battle is a physical, a spiritual battle against the world, the flesh, and the powers of Satan. Remember, David told Goliath, you come at me with a sword and a spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord. So we should be powerful. Number one, I say this, I wrote down this, we should be powerful to stand against temptation. We should be powerful to stand against temptation. Hebrews 12:1 reminds us, let us lay aside every weight and sin that does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. How? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We need to run with patience. Yet all too often in the church, we see those that are weak in the Lord that give in to temptation. They give in to mental temptation. Like coveting after things that we shouldn't be coveting after. And I'm reminded of Hebrews 13, 5 that says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, our Jesus should be more important than our stuff. And yet the church, it seems that the stuff has become more important than Jesus. In fact, in America, it's what's expected anymore, honestly. Anyone who lives a holy life is unusual, is strange. I mean, after all, what's wrong with a little bit of sin? Maybe that's part of, the why, part of why it's so easy for us to give in a temptation. Because it's the common thing. It's expected. But let me remind you about 1 Peter 2.9, that you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Let me put that in plainer words. That means we should look strange to the world. Amen. The Bible also says uh, in Titus 2.14, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. A zealot is somebody that's hard to understand why they're so excited or why they're so driven to do the things that they do. It's a spiritual battle that we have against the temptations of the mind. And the Bible says, commands us, that we are to be, that we are to be casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. It's a spiritual battle and we should be strong in the Lord and the power of His might and not weak to temptation. Maybe the problem is we haven't put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6.13 tells us to put on the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. We're supposed to gird our loins with the belt of truth and shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Pick up the shield of faith, which is able to quench the fiery darts of the enemy. And pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
The Bible says about the armor of God, Wherefore take ye the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand for Jesus. Stand for Jesus. But in fact, the Bible says we're supposed to count it all joy when we fall in diverse temptations. We're supposed to be happy when we're tempted of things and we're, while we're being tried of things. Why would that be the case? Well, first of all, um, it, the Bible says, The trying of our faith worketh patience. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to lay aside every weight and sin that does so easily beset us and run with patience the race that's set before us. So the trying of your faith produces patience. Not only that, it helps us to rely on God. James tells us that if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and braideth, abradeth not. And then thirdly, when we endure temptation, the Bible says that we shall receive the crown of life, which is reserved for those that love him. And then number two, the second thing under Jesus was powerful and so should we be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Number two, I said, we should be powerful to stand up for Jesus. We should be powerful to stand up for Jesus. Mark 8, 38, this is Jesus speaking. Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh the glory of his Father and that of the holy angels. We should be strong to stand up for Jesus. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's a power of God unto salvation. Paul wrote to 2 Timothy to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And 1 Peter 3.15 reminds us, that we are to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts always and be ready always to give an answer to every man who asks us the reason of the faith that is in us with meekness and fear. We should stand, we should be powerful to stand for Jesus. After all, if you're saved and the Spirit of God resides in you, God hath not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We should be strong to stand for Jesus. Uh, in the Bible, they told Paul, they said, Oh, Paul, if you don't stop preaching, we're going to kill you. And he said to die is gain because he knew he'd be with Christ. And they said, Fine, if you want to die, we're going to let you live. And Paul said to live is Christ because he could tell that many more people about Jesus. And they said, Well, fine, if you want to live and you want to die, we're going to let you live and throw you in jail and make you suffer. And he said, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ was powerful because he had the Spirit without measure. We are to be filled with the Spirit of God. We should be strong to stand against temptation and we should be strong to stand up for Jesus. Now, when I used to teach um, in Utah, I was a math teacher there also. I taught geometry and algebra, one, algebra A. And this school was for students who had get, got kicked out of the main high schools. Okay? They either got kicked out for behavior or they got kicked out for attendance. So I, I pretty much, every, almost every one of my students either lived in foster care, group homes, some of them lived in second level foster care and even third level foster care. I had some students that would be there on Monday, but Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, they were at the detention center. 
and then they'd be back on Friday. And so at the end of the school year, we had a, we had a uh, well, Utah, where we live in Utah is a wild place, okay? We had like the biggest Baptist church within like an hour and a half before you got to Salt Lake City. And we only had about 50 people and about 20 of them were kids. Yeah, the majority of the Baptist churches had about 8 to 10 people that attended on a regular basis. And there was only about 8 or 10 of them churches around us, about. I think that's about right. And I remember I wanted to invite all those young people to our church. And so I did. I invited everybody that went to my school. And I didn't care what they said because it was the end of the school year and um, they had already laid me off for the next year. So it didn't make any difference. I invited every kid I could. <laughs> and we had my van and we had, do we have a car then? We had two vehicles and we bussed like these 50 kids in two small vehicles. Not like a van like this, just our personal van. And we bussed all these kids from church, from the, from the school that day on a Friday night. And I preached to them about the real Jesus. Will the real Jesus please stand up? I said, I'm not talking about the Mormon Jesus. I'm not talking about the world's Jesus. I'm not talking about any other Jesus but this, the Jesus that comes from this book. And I preached to them that it was God manifest in the flesh. Now these kids, I call them the Mormon rejects because they didn't fit in the Mormon church. They just weren't good enough to be part of the Mormon church. So not only were they rejected from the school system, they were rejected by the Mormon church. Now, I got in there and preached to them about this, and I had to bust them all home now. And it wasn't just from the school. I had to take them all to their houses. It took me about two and a half, three hours that night just to get them all home. But I'll never forget, when I drove, back then, our van was magnetic. I mean, it was a metal back door, so we had a magnet on there. And now my car doesn't have that. It's not metal anymore. It's just, I don't know what it is, but you can't stick a magnet back there. And had this magnet that said, Jesus is God, are you saved? And if you want to have fun sometime, just drive through Utah with a magnet that says, Jesus is God, are you saved? And so we're driving down the highway, and I got this young man sitting in the passenger seat, and a few people, a few other students in the back. We're going down the highway, and this lady goes up beside me on the interstate and waves at me and points to me. And I'm like, what? Did I leave my gas cap off? Do I have a flat tire? What's going on? So I rolled down the window. And she's driving down the interstate, yells to me and says, Hey, Jesus is not God. Have you ever read John 3, 16? And I was like, I was getting ready to say, Well, have you ever read 1 Timothy 3, 16? God manifest in the flesh. But before I could say that, he leans his head out the window, going down the interstate at 65 miles an hour, and said, You blankety blank blank, Jesus is God. <laughs> Now, I'm not advocating for that. I don't think that was a good thing. But I thought about it some more after that day, and I realized the only thing he had known was the Mormon church. The only thing he had known was being a reject from the Mormon church. And that wasn't right. But you know what? I would rather have him beside me than some believers that I know, because at least he would stand for Jesus when the time came. He would tell you that Jesus was God and he had just met the real Jesus about 30 minutes ago. Stand for Jesus. Well, not only was Jesus a power, a man of power, but Jesus was a man of prayer. Matthew 26, 40 says this, And he cometh unto his disciples and finding them asleep and saith unto Peter, What, could you not watch for me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, and the flesh is weak. 
I'd hate for Jesus to show up at our church services or, or at, at our prayer meetings or at my house when I'm praying. He'd be like, couldn't you, Terry, couldn't you wait with me just five minutes? Couldn't you just pray for four and a half minutes? That's the way he might be with us because the disciples couldn't make it an hour. Sometimes our prayers don't even last five minutes. And I know Philippians 4, 6 says, Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving make your request known unto God. Jesus was a man of prayer. He prayed all night long. So I had a couple of things under that. Without some of the, I'm going to skip over a few things. But number one, Jesus prayed for hours. I said that. He prayed for hours. Martin Luther said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the next three hours in prayer. Abraham Lincoln, was, I think, was the one who said that if he was going to cut wood for eight hours, he'd sharpen his axe for the first hour. So we need to sharpen our sword. We need to sharpen our lives with prayer. Amen. And I know we're commanded to pray without ceasing, the Bible says. So not all, first of all, Jesus prayed for hours. But second of all, Jesus prayed for things that matter. Look, Jesus' prayers weren't about the little tiny physical ailments that we have. He didn't pray for a new job or for more money. He didn't pray for those things. His prayers sounded something like this. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. His prayer says something like this. If it be possible, as he faced the cross, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus prayed about things that mattered, and he told us, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send those that might be able to reap the harvest. He said, look, the harvest is white already. Pray for the harvest. I know the Bible says in the Lord's Prayer, it says this. It says, give us this day our daily bread. And there's nothing wrong with praying for what we need. Jesus told us to do that. But that wasn't line one, two, or three. The Bible says the Lord, the Bible says when we pray, we're supposed to pray in a specific way. And you know what? I decided to Google how to pray. I thought Google is going to be terrible. It's going to have some terrible stuff on here. And I'm not going to like it. I'm going to make fun of it. I can't wait. But this is, <laughs> guess what came up? Number one, know whom you are speak, to whom you are speaking. Our Father which art in heaven. Thank him, our Father with chart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Ask, God, ask for God's will, hallowed be thy name. Um, our Father with chart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Number four, say what you need. Give us this day our daily bread. And ask for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts that we might forgive those who sinned against us. And then number six, pray with a friend. And James said something about that. And then number seven, pray the word. Wow. Pray the word. Hey, Google got one right, all right? I mean, all the answers are out there. You just got to figure out which ones are the right ones, right? And then number three, not only Jesus prayed for hours, he prayed for things that matter. But number three, his prayers got results. Jesus' prayers got results. So WWJD, he would pray, he would pray for hours, and he would pray prayers that got results. And I'm just going to cut to the chase on this one, James 5, 16. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Amen. So let's talk about the effective prayer. The effectual prayer, which means effective. Jesus prayed according to God's will. Mm. 
Just a minute ago we said, he said, if this cup could pass, nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. James reminded us of this. You have not because you ask not, but if you ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. You have not because you ask not, and if you ask and you have not, it's because you ask for the wrong thing. So praying according to God's will is effectual. The effectual fervent prayer. Fervent deals with, actually deals with the word heat and fever and passion and repetition. So he says pray God's will and pray consistently. Pray with passion. Pray with fire. Pray like you mean it. And then the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. A righteous man is one who saved and it's also one who lives right according to God's word. So we found out Jesus was powerful. He's a man of power. Found out that Jesus was a man of prayer. And then also I want to say this. Jesus was a man of passion. Jesus was a man of passion. Acts 1-3 says that whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. What it's saying is this, that Jesus, after he died on the cross, showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. Proofs that cannot be defeated or destroyed. So what in the world is passion then? Well, I looked it up in the dictionary and it says this, passion, strong and barely controllable emotion. And then the number two definition was this, the suffering and death of Jesus. But I think the first definition was enough to cover it for us. Strong and barely controllable emotions. Jesus loved us so much. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus' passion was us. His passion was you and me. He was so concerned. He had such a strong and barely controllable emotion for you and me that even when he prayed to God saying that he was scared to go to the cross, that he was willing to do it because God had called him to do it and that was his plan. Jesus was a man of passion. Matthew 26, 38, Jesus said this, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. In John eleven thirty five, 35, reaccounting re- the story of Lazarus, when he found that he died, the Bible says, Jesus wept. Jesus was a man of passion. He was a man of compassion. We'll get to that. But he was a man of passion. So I would say this. We should have passion for the things of God. We should have passion for the things of God. I see passion for sports. I see passion for social events. I see passion for the things that people like. But where is the passion for the things of God in the church? It's okay to have March Madness. It's okay to be standing in front of the TV and screaming for Duke with, uh, with uh, 38 seconds left and they're down by three and you're yelling, and he's driving in and you're like, no, shoot a three, shoot a three, shoot a three. And he drives in and gets fouled and he gets a, gets a free throw and they end up winning the game and you're going crazy and someone walks in like, what's wrong with that guy? Oh, it's just March Madness. No big deal. 
But on the other hand, if you'd walked in on me Friday night after discovering this new song I'd been listening to, I'm going to share it with you in a minute. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to share the words with you in just a minute. And I'm sitting there going, and this is before my family got home on Friday, and I was like, woo, that's good singing right there. I love it. And someone walked in and just be like, that's just church madness. Yeah, okay. Nobody would understand it. March madness is okay, but Jesus madness, that doesn't cut it in our society. Passion. Jesus had passion. And I remember reading in my Bible in Colossians 3, 1, it said this. If, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek the things which are above. That's time. Set your affections on things above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of the Father. Set your affections, set your desires, set your passions on the things of God. Let's see some passion for the things of God. When the preacher preaches about Calvary and the blood of Christ, hey, shout hallelujah every once in a while. When they get up and sing about standing for Jesus because he loved you with his arms out wide on that old rugged cross, maybe you could uh, raise your hand and say glory. Amen. Hey, maybe we need what um, C.T. Townsend told us. Maybe we need an appreciation for what we've got. Wow. Maybe if God could just reach down and pull back the top of hell for just a few seconds. Mm -hmm. And we could hear people shouting and screaming in agony and pain. We would be reminded of what Christ did on the cross for us and what we deserved. And maybe it would motivate us to show passion for what Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen. You remember um, Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man goes to hell and the rich man says, please, just give me some water. And then he says, please, just let me go back and tell my brothers. And he said, oh, no. He said, you're not going back to tell your brothers. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither shall they be persuaded, though one was rose from the dead. Well, I told you Utah's a crazy place. On Sundays, the Mormons don't go to their church service. And he's at, yeah, you know, their, their worship service. Mormons don't go to the worship service on Easter, I said Sunday, Easter Sunday morning, right? They get it right that time. Easter Sunday morning, they had their conference that morning. And so they stay home and watch it on TV. So I said, all right, I'm going to invite all the teachers to my church on Sunday morning. So I invited all the teachers from my school to come to our church. And if they'd all shown up, they would have overflowed our church. But we had about four or five of them, about four or five teachers come to the service. And uh, I got a little carried away that morning, and I was preaching. And I was really letting loose. And I remember the art teacher came to me afterwards and she said, that was a tremendous job day. But she said, you know, that passion you have, you could really apply that to anything. You could apply it to art. You could apply it to sports. You could apply it to your work. And I looked at her in the face and I said, no, you can't. There's only one thing on this planet worth being that passionate for. There's only one thing that's ever happened to me that I can get that excited about. And it's the fact that Jesus came down from heaven, became a man, died on the cross, rose again, and now I can spend eternity with Christ in heaven. That's what you should be passionate about. And everything else should come second. He was a man of passion. Also, I said this, I said that, we should have passion for the things of God. Then I said we should have the pa passion for the people of God. Okay. I'm running out of time, but Matthew 9, 36 says that Jesus saw the multitude and was moved with compassion because they didn't have anything to eat. Matthew 4, 14, 14, Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. Mark 8, 2, 
I have compassion on the multitude because they've been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Matthew 20, 34. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight. WWJD, Jesus had compassion on the people. We should have compassion on people. Remember the verse, 1 John 3, 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Amen. We should also lay down our lives for unbelievers and talk to them. Because Paul said this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, for this is your reasonable service. He died for you. You should live for him. We need to lay down our lives for others because what he did. And then thirdly, we should have passion for the Word of God. I promise I'll make this fast, even though this is, going to be my long, this is going to be my longest point. We should have passion for the Word of God. Here's what David said. Thy Word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Thy Word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Wouldn't it just be great if a modern theologian or some of these modern church preachers had wrote that verse? It might say something like this. Well, God's word is very encouraging, therefore I like it some. Or maybe it would have said this, that God's word is really just stories collectively that somehow put together the ideas over which the world began and the argument that there is a, a divisive position between sin and between, I mean, between evil and good. And in the end, good wins anyway. So therefore your servant occasionally mentions it or reads it. He said, therefore thy servant loveth it. We should have passion for the word of God. I listened to the preacher when I was like 21 or 22, and he said he's supposed to read 30 pages a day. And he said it like, uh, you know, that was normal. And so I was like, okay. I said, I grew up in a charismatic church, okay? And I was coming over to the Baptist, and I want to know all the answers. I was like, finally got me a Baptist minister that's going to tell me everything about the word of God. He said you read 30 pages a day, so I started reading 30 pages a day. I tore this thing up, 30 pages a day, couldn't stop. And uh, like a year and a half later, I just ran out of steam, I couldn't do it anymore, and I found out that he, apparently, he was a speed reader, and 30 pages a day didn't take him much time at all. Wow. <laughs> so I don't read quite that much anymore, but I do love to read the Word of God. All right, this is it, I'm closed with this. But if you don't have some passion right now, let me see if I can help you with the words of that song that I was shouting to Friday night at home at my house. His heart was broken. Mine was mended. He became sin. Now I am clean. The cross he carried bore my burden. Anybody getting excited yet? Anybody falling asleep yet? You still awake? All right. <laughs> Here's another one for you. Let's see if this, hey, if this doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. Here we go. The nails that held him set me free. Oh, woo! Well, we just need to read this. After they sing, I just read this. Oh, man. His scars of suffering brought me healing. He spilled his blood to fill my soul. His crown of thorns, and this is where I started shouting, his crown of thorns made me royalty. His sorrow gave me joy untold. He was despised and rejected stripped of his garments and oppressed. I am loved and accepted, and I wear a robe of righteousness 
Man, I wish I could sing right now. I really <laughs> wish I could sing. Oh, and here's the chorus. His life for mine, how can it be? How could it ever be that he would die for me? God's son would die to save a wretch like me. What love divine he gave his life for mine. Where is our passion, church? Where is the almost uncontrollable emotions that show up on the sports field, that show up at our workplaces? Where is it when it comes to Jesus Christ? And for completeness sake, I'll give you my fourth point, but I'm not going to preach it. Jesus was a man that preached the end of the world, that preached the end of the world. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.